Every week on the show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the Weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Jun Kim. And I'm Sam Marchetti. And today, we're going to get up to date on everything from Pluto to rockets in another discussion on the sidelines. So Sam, what have you seen in the news recently? Okay, I don't know about you, but uh, I've noticed, uh, you know, when you go to the store and everything seems to be more expensive. Yes, absolutely. I've noticed that. Yeah, I don't love it. It's not a trend that I'm super into. I actually just um, just today, I, I, I snagged a reservation of an electric car. Um, oh, because, nice. Yeah, because I'm getting kind of sick of the, uh, of the gas prices. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, so I, I snagged a reservation on an electric car. But in general, things are getting more expensive, especially especially gas, right? Yes. Um, so one thing that I was reading this week, um, it was a report uh, from CBC, but it was a report on a study that looked at the efficiency of induction stoves compared to gas stoves. Okay. Um, and it actually, I, I mean, I don't know, June, which do you prefer? Like, if you had a choice between an induction stove or a gas stove, like, which one would you go for? Honestly, like, I feel like the induction stove is cleaner, but the gas stove seems to, I don't know if it's because I can actually see the flame or whatever, but the gas stove seems to be more effective to me. That's what, honestly, that's what I would think as well. The other thing that I really like about the gas stove, you get really good control, like heat control of what right. you're doing in the pot, um, exactly. which like, I mean, I don't cook that much, but I've tried to make, you know, Gordon Ramsay recipes a few times and he, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. obsessive about like, oh, you got to turn the heat down now, you know? Um, oh, yeah, that's true. So you get the control with the gas stove and it does seem like it heats things up faster, right? Maybe because it's, you know, an open flame and you can actually see the flame. But in reality, the gas stove is less efficient. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, you're going to be really surprised by this, but how much more efficient do you think the induction stove is than the gas stove? I mean... I'll I'll be charitable to the induction because I know it's a good technology and a lot of people like it. Maybe maybe twice the efficiency. Twice the efficiency. You're close. It's about 2.5 times the efficiency. So gas 2. stoves 5. about 32 percent efficient. They lose a lot of that heat to their surroundings. Right. That's why sometimes uh, you feel like your hand is burning when you're using the gas. That makes stove, a lot of sense. Right. Induction stoves. 85 percent efficiency. 85 percent of that uh, energy is going right into what you're cooking. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, like, because it's the open, open flame, I can see a lot of it just kind of escaping as heat uh, away yeah. from the food. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they um, this study said that if, you know, if you sold um, all the or if you looked at all the cooking tops that were sold in the U.S. Um, in 2021 and you <laughs> like and you changed them all to induction stoves, uh, you would save about one hundred and twenty five million U.S. dollars uh, in energy wow. savings. That is ridiculous, which is a ton of money. And the other thing about it is not it's not just the cost, right? It's not just the, the cost of, um, you know, the gas to use the stove, but it's also the emissions. Um, so when we use our, you know, natural gas stoves, do you know what uh, natural gas is made of? Uh, natural gas contains methane, right? Yeah. Or one methane. of the. Yeah. Yeah, methane, really big greenhouse gas. So there's a huge concern there, not just when you're burning it, because when you burn it, it produces CO2, 
Um, but it can leak, right? So the storage right. and the pipes that provide the methane can leak, um, and they're not really heavily regulated. Uh, the study talks a little bit about you know gas fireplaces, but the thing about that is that gas fireplaces usually have a vent, and they're a little bit better uh, regulated for leaks and things than uh, gas that supplies your stove. Hmm. Wow, that's one of those stories where it's just like, you know, it seems so small for one person, right? One person changing from gas to induction seems so small. But then when you say if every single person did it, we are saving hundreds of, you said billions, right? Millions, 125 million US. Right. So it's crazy that you go from just gas to induction for everybody, right? If one person does it, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But now when everyone does that, that's saving millions of dollars. That that just seems crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, and even back to um, you can compare it to cars kind of like, you know, when you think about cars, people are like, OK, well, even if I don't get like an electric car right now, like, um, you know, fuel efficiency is getting better, right? Because we have better <laughs> fuel standards. It's not like that with stoves like gas stoves. Uh, part of this study was looking at the age of the stove. And even if they're brand new and they were very recently manufactured, and installed, they all still leak a little. Um, and they're all still you know, the same efficiency. We haven't really been able to improve that efficiency. So the emissions and the cost um, haven't really been affected by any kind of technological progress in the area of gas stoves. Yeah, fair enough. I, I don't hear a lot about innovation in the gas stove industry. So that does kind of make sense. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit of a throwback. This is maybe about a month ago we covered this on the, the weekly sideshow, actually. But do you remember when we talked about the study that used genetically modified male mosquitoes to try and reduce the amount of female mosquitoes in the population? Do you remember this one? Yes. Yes. Nice. So, so just a reminder, viewers uh, or listeners, basically, there was a study that was done within Florida. They used genetically modified male mosquitoes to sabotage the female gene in those mosquitoes. And that prevented more female, prevented female mosquitoes from being born. So this is just the follow up. The results are now actually in from that study. And I thought it'd be interesting to share. So the specific mosquito used was the 80s Egyptian mosquito, and they were released in Florida. And again, the way it worked is that these are gen genetically modified males. And if they ever like mate with any other like actual wild mosquitoes, the female gene is sabotaged. So it's supposed to prevent any more females uh, in the future generations or future offspring. And the reason why this is important is that this particular species of mosquito actually transmits diseases like dengue, Zika, and way more. So they an analyzed 22,000 eggs, which is a lot, in these controlled spaces, and the results were excellent. Almost all of the female mosquitoes died before adulthood, which means that the gene sabotage was absolutely working. So that's pretty cool. But there's a little bit of a, I, I guess, one downside to this entire study, which is that it doesn't really prove much, though, when it comes to controlling disease outbreak. Because for a variety of ethical reasons, obviously, they can't do a study on how much a disease would spread because it'd be terrible to spread any disease to even one person. And also, this is a seven-month study. So we don't know if this was effective in a matter of weeks, in a matter of months. And if there's an outbreak, as you might know, you know, if we can control it within a matter of months, that's great. But that still spreads to a lot of people. So we don't know if this is actually a very effective tool or not. But the one thing we do know is it actually works, the, at least the the sabotage, the gene sabotage to prevent any future female mosquitoes from arising actually does work. So there's something that was definitely found here, but not 
no big rep, uh, imp- implications for the world of disease control, I would say. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but you're right. It is really cool that, you know, this gene sabotage is able to work on the population level. One thing I'm kind of wondering about, though, and I, I hope they kind of address this in, you know, uh, a future uh, update of their study, because I imagine they'll, they'll keep monitoring it. But what kind of effect is that having on the uh, the ecosystems in these controlled environments, removing all the uh, the female mosquitoes and, you know, effectively lowering the mosquito population? Um, yeah, because, you know, you have to imagine there's some pretty significant effects there. Um, there's some pretty significant interactions with other parts of the ecosystem. So just removing them so abruptly has to it has to be changing something. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, in Lilo and Stitch, the way they justify Earth being a protected planet is um, they say mosquitoes are an endangered animal or they try and say mosquitoes are so critical to the the Earth's ecosystem. And, and I guess it's an, a little bit of an exaggeration, definitely not endangered, but absolutely true. There is a huge impact on the ecosystem. I, I don't think they've said anything about it in particular, uh, but you're absolutely right. That, that must come into play somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and June, I know you got a, I know you got a couple, uh, or at least we have a couple of stories collectively to talk about today that uh, end up in space. So why don't we, uh, why don't we start heading out there? Um, Absolutely. One thing I want to talk about this week: you've heard of SpaceX. I've heard of SpaceX. I'm sure most people have heard of SpaceX. Right, Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos over there with his other uh, his other rockets sending themselves into space. So yes. this kind of privatization of um, space travel <laughs> and of rocket launches has been expanding recently. And there's one firm in the States called Rocket Lab USA Incorporated, which sounds like a very just strong patriotic name. I don't know. How else. <laughs> Rocket Lab USA Incorporated. Very straightforward, at least. I'll give them that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question about what they're doing over there. We know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so what they did this week um, which is actually pretty exciting. So they tested their rockets and they launched uh, 34 satellites towards orbit with uh, with one of their rockets. Okay, so 34 satellites out towards uh, towards orbit back on uh, back on it was Monday evening, I think, um, in New Zealand. They did this launch, uh, and after they had launched it, what happened was, you know, as with most rocket launchers, um, the sorry, rocket launches, uh, the booster falls back to Earth. Right. That right. booster rocket that contains a lot of the fuel and gives it the initial thrust to escape Earth's uh, Earth's atmosphere. Um, so the booster rocket fell back to Earth. But in most cases, do you know what happens to the booster rockets? It just sinks in the ocean, right? Right. They let it kind of fall into the ocean. Sometimes they'll retrieve it from the ocean. Um, right. OK. But what Rocket Lab USA did was that they put parachutes on the rocket to slow it down as it was falling back. So on this booster thing, this huge thing. Um, they put parachutes on it. They slowed it down to about 35 kilometers per hour. It's it's descent. Um, and they flew a helicopter over it. They oh, flew wow. a helicopter with a really long cable just hanging from it like it's a video game or something. <laughs> and they quite literally flew over, attached the booster rocket to this cable. Um, and the plan was to carry it back to land. Now, they didn't actually succeed because, you know, this was a first test. After they attached the cable to the booster rocket, um, they kind of realized that the helicopter wasn't flying quite as they wanted it to. So just for safety, they kind of let it go and let it fall into the ocean. Um, but we're getting there. This is pretty cool um, because this, you know, it marks uh, some significant progress towards a future space travel where we can actually retrieve rocket boosters um, and, you know, put them right back onto land without them ever touching uh, the ocean water. 
Right. I mean, Elon and SpaceX also wanted to do that project where uh, the rockets them like land themselves back onto the surface yeah. of the Earth yeah, safely yeah. as well. So looks like they're looking into as many creative ways they can to kind of reuse these um, yeah. um, boosters as much as possible. Yeah, I think the key difference with um, Elon, Elon's, uh, you know, thing that landed itself was that there's still fuel in that one. Um, right. In this, it's a completely spent booster rocket that they are trying to catch in midair, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to, uh, to think about the future of these kinds of uh, rocket launches. Not that I'm a big fan of, you know, uh, private space travel and, mm -hmm. you know, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, tourism, space tourism. Not a huge mm -hmm. fan of that. But in terms of exploration and, you know, launching satellites to make life on Earth better, um, I think this is a cool uh, advancement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 also kind of cool that, you know, it, it, this is something that you could never train for. I, I don't know what, you know, what it, the training for a helicopter pilot is, but I assure you that it probably does not contain uh, how to catch or at least uh, connect to a rocket midair and then safely land. So this is definitely cool in that field as well, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. So moving on to our next planet. So we started on Earth. Uh, let's go all the way to a planet that has unfortunately been demoted to a dwarf planet, Pluto. So uh, actually, even before we go into that, do you have any thoughts on Pluto becoming a dwarf planet? I know a lot of people have uh, strong opinions on this matter. I don't really have that strong an opinion on it. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, it was a planet. And then at some point, someone told me it wasn't a planet anymore. You know, I never really had an opinion on it. I don't think I was old <laughs> enough to care at the time. Like <laughs> That's absolutely fair enough. What? I also remember just being so confused just, you know, when I was a kid, you know, ah, Pluto's the, the ninth planet of the solar system. And then it wasn't anymore. Yeah, it's just kind of been the brunt of jokes, I think, for most of my life. Like, that's, you know, you know, you do you, Pluto, whatever, that's whatever you want. <laughs> well, Pluto has some good news in terms of good press, and that is some exciting discoveries. So NASA's New Horizons spacecraft recently did some more photographing on some interesting terrain on Pluto. And what they've identified recently are ice volcanoes. So they sound exactly as they are. They are volcanoes that shoot ice as opposed to lava. And they shoot like this like slushy water ice material. So Pluto does actually have water, but it is all like frozen because it's extremely cold on Pluto. So there isn't really much liquid water. Uh, but it's actually so cold on Pluto that you also will find methane in a solid ice form and nitrogen in solid ice form. And I don't know the exact numbers, but nitrogen freezes at about like negative 300 Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius, um, but that's pretty cold and Pluto is colder than that. So nitrogen is actually in a solid ice form on Pluto and those like other ices as well, like nitrogen ice, methane ice will also shoot out of these ice volcanoes. Um, obviously, you know, some kind of mixture probably, but one ice volcano called the Wright Mons is actually as big as Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And that's one of Earth's largest volcanoes. And keeping in mind, Pluto is a sixth of the size of the Earth. Pluto is actually smaller than the moon. That's a pretty big volcano for Pluto then. And the other cool thing is that it's presumed that these volcanoes are recently formed. So they haven't been there for a long time. So that also means that there's constant geologic activity on Pluto, just like there is on Earth. So yeah, an another cool discovery for Pluto. Yeah, that's really cool. There's, yeah, that there's, you know, constant geologic activity way out there where it's so cold. Um, 
And you know what? I'm actually going to use this to transition quickly into the next the next story because this is really closely related. Um, <laughs> what I wanted to talk about was Jupiter. Um, All right. So Jupiter is also way out there, right? Yes, absolutely. Like it's freezing out there. It's still very, yes, very yes. cold. And because it's so cold, if we look to the surface of Jupiter's moons, Io in particular, which is one of its moons, people have always imagined that, um, you know, the surface is basically just frozen, and there's also no atmosphere up there. There's no wind or anything uh, to move things around. But what uh, NASA's Galileo uh, mission has observed now on Io, on the surface of Io, despite the very little atmosphere and the freezing temperatures, they've seen dunes. Oh, like like desert dunes? Like, yeah, like, like something like a desert? Dune. Like the, okay. the setting of the movie <laughs> Dune, exactly wow. like that. But the, the interesting thing behind that is that, you know, the way we understand dunes is that we need wind um, and we need individual little, you know, grains of sand to push that wind and pile it up. Right. But on Io, right. there's such little atmosphere. First of all, there's a, there's no wind and it's also so cold um, that everything's basically frozen. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but again, back to the trend of, you know, geologic activity in, in the outer planets. Um, the, the conclusion from this study was that there's so much geologic activity that's going on. Um, that the venting of volcanic activity under the surface um, is constantly moving things around and it has enough speed, uh, enough velocity to move little grains of like volcanic ash around on the surface of the moon. Oh, wow. And, you know, form these uh, these large scale features like dunes. That's crazy. I mean, thinking about like we, we always say like, oh, there's a climate on Earth. You know, there's going to rain on this day. It's going to snow on this day. And, and we think this is so normal for us because obviously we live here. But like these kinds of storms, weather conditions, geological activity, uh, weather patterns. I think I said weather patterns already. But the point is they are like, all of the other planets have the exact same thing. And we don't know much about it. Yeah, it is crazy, right? Because we've we've always assumed so much about these planets that we can't get anywhere near yet. You know, we've sent a couple of probes and a couple of, you know, uh, uh, you know, basically robots out there to look for us and take pictures. Um, but we've made so many assumptions that we just don't know, you know? Yeah. Like we made so many assumptions that just can't be like really backed up yet. And we're constantly finding out really new but also really elementary things about these planets right yeah they're actually definitely very under under researched or underexplored. and i also remember reading elsewhere about you you've heard of jupiter's great red spot right that massive storm yeah on yeah, jupiter yeah. and and neptune has something similar called the great dark spot it's it's pretty much the same thing a huge huge storm and the crazy thing is these storms are moving and also shrinking as time is going on and I remember seeing that there's this photo of Neptune from like the 80s when, or I can't remember when Voyager passed Neptune, but whenever Voyager passed, uh, Voyager 2 passed Neptune, they took a photo then. And then they compared it with a photo of Neptune today and it looks completely different because the spot is completely gone. It's in a completely different place. So yeah, even these storms and great spots are, are moving all of the time. Even these big things that were like, I remember learning about that in like elementary school, you know, like the great red spot. And to things yes. like that, even that's something that like, you know, that so that wasn't entirely, you know, correct. Like, Yeah, the last photo you saw of Jupiter and if you compared to uh, like if you saw Jupiter right now with your own eyes, somehow the spot would be in a different place. Right. That, that's just kind of how it works. And I think that's so cool. Yeah, no, that's absolutely just mind blowing. Like it's 
It's incredible. And, you know, it really makes me think, um, and I mean, I guess maybe I'm thinking about this a little bit because I saw the trailer for the new uh, new Avatar movie last night. Yes, but, uh, I heard that one. I saw that one, too. Yeah, good for him. You know, 10 years later, finally finishing another movie. Yeah. James Cameron for you. One movie right. every decade. Um, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, but, you know, it just makes me wonder about, uh, you know, extra, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, planets outside of our solar system, planets in other solar systems. You know, yes. people are constantly looking for that the Goldilocks planet. But how can we know anything about these Goldilocks planets from so far away when we're still mm -hmm. discovering these super elementary things about the planets that are relatively very close by? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's what's amazing about space. So to wrap up our episode today, uh, we go from space and uh, all the way back to microscopic on Earth. And I want to talk about the microbiome. So uh, you're familiar with the gut microbiome, right? Yeah. So it's in the uh, you're talking about in your colon where you have a bunch of uh, basically a bunch of bacteria living that help kind of regulate your digestive processes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, believe it or not, we live with bacteria everywhere and we interact with bacteria everywhere whether you like it or not and part of that is also having bacteria throughout our entire you know intestinal and gastrointestinal system so the gut microbiome is that the bacteria or microbes that exist in our stomach our colon intestines all of that and they are typically symbiotic which is great because it's good for us good for them uh, and usually they help with things like digesting foods or processing certain nutrients but here's the finding did you know that depending on how your gut microbiome is or like which kinds of bacteria are in your gut microbiome, it could also affect your cravings for food. So that's the, the very interesting finding here. And, and depending on what specific microbes you have, you'll have different kinds of cravings. So obviously it's not incredibly specific. It's not, it's not like if you have this bacteria, you will want fries the next day. Like it's not <laughs> to that level, but it is definitely... If you have a specific kind of bacteria, uh, bacteria in your gut, then you will prefer more protein heavy diets or prefer more carbohydrate heavy diets. Uh, and that was the degree to which they were able to test this. And this study was in mice, so not humans. So not fully um, taking into consideration all the factors that may be involved, because obviously, you know, what a mouse prefers to eat or has a craving is very different from a human having a craving because we're also just affected by so many other things, right? Like if we see an ad for some food or if we see someone else eating a particular kind of food. So the finding says that certain microbes are also able to produce tryptophan, which is an amino acid that's commonly found in turkey meat. And this is the amino acid people say make you sleepy. And what tryptophan does is it's a precursor that later gets made into serotonin and that makes you feel satiated after a meal, kind of like feeling full. And that later, like serotonin, gets turned into melatonin, which is the hormone that makes you sleepy. So that's why people say after a huge turkey dinner, they, they feel sleepy. So mice will actually have cravings for food with tryptophan uh, if they have specific bacteria that's made to create, like basically digest or process tryptophan. So that was one very specific example that they were able to find. So again, humans have a lot more factors when it comes to craving cravings and what we'd want to eat. But at the very least, it does show that the specific bacteria that are in our own body is at least one of those many factors. Yeah, that's really cool. Even if this isn't a much simpler, you know, like the the, the mouse model, um, you know, I would love to find some of the, ba the bacteria that makes me want a protein heavy diet instead of a <laughs> carbohydrate heavy diet. I think that would yeah. be excellent for me. And the crazy thing about this all is that, you know, how many, many different people have 
such different cravings and some people love to eat like very heavy foods and some people don't really like to eat very heavy foods. And another thing is some people say that they can never become vegetarian because they need to have, you know, the specific kinds of, uh, you know, meats or fishes and, and getting proteins in a specific way. And some people say that they, they can very easily, they don't even crave uh, a, a nice steak or something like that. And they can, they're more than happy to get proteins in other ways. There's a possibility that those kinds of tendencies or preferences also come from this as well. So a lot more to be uncovered in this story. I'd that say. would be really cool, actually, to find a, you know, a biological interaction. It's not even a biological, like, you know, a human biological reason, but a biological interaction that determines whether you could be vegetarian or not. That's that's something I would love to learn more about. Yeah. And thanks so much for joining me on this episode. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about space or any of the other topics we've talked about on the show, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Sci for Everyone and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.